Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Aaron Stanford, an occupational therapist from Macquarie Pediatrics. And this is part two of our interview with Aaron. She was able to provide so much information and we didn't want you guys to miss a beat of it. So we hope you enjoy again with us. Welcome, Aaron Stanford. Aaron, it's really nice to have you back. I'm so excited to be back. We had so much fun last time. So let's see where we go. You had mentioned sensory. Would sensory fall under occupational therapy? Well, it it really depends on your schooling and your location around the country. Within Los Angeles, where I am, I uh, attended a school that is very, um, has kind of always been central to the SI world. So I got, I, I got a lot of sensory integration training. Um, I do have an advanced uh, certification, you know, in, in sensory integration. So I think it's part of OT in general, other areas also will look at sensory processing, potentially, you know, you get a little bit in physical therapy, there's body stuff involved. And, um, but I'd say that at least here, if you have a child who has sensory processing differences, you're going to go to an OT if you have concerns and be evaluated and kind of see how it impacts again function. You know, you've got your, your major sensory processing pieces like tactile, you know, your sense of touch and your sense of vision and taste and smell and hearing and the big one, you know, everything goes back for, for us. For me, I got indoctrinated with lots of pay attention to proprioception and it's the hidden sixth sense. Proprioception is, it is the sensation that is received in the joints, the muscles, ligaments that really inform body awareness, turning on your, again, I I had mentioned kind of the, um, it's not strength, but it's how much do I need to exert? Um, And so, you know, the, the example I love to give in terms of proprioception is you, you, you buy a jug of milk, right? A gallon jug of milk yesterday. And today you go in and you're like, I've got so much milk. I'm going to go grab it out of the fridge. And I know it's going to be heavy. So I'm going to go grab it. And when you go to grab it, it actually, somebody drank all the milk and there's a tiny bit and you go to pick it up with all that force. And it's going to go flying if you don't respond to the reduced weight now, right? Which kind of goes into your muscles, your joints and goes, Hey, 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 too much, too much. Turn it down, turn that force down. So it doesn't go flying. Conversely, maybe you bought it two weeks ago thinking it's going to be empty, but nobody's drinking milk these days. So you go in thinking you don't need to use too much force and you can't pick it up unless you recruit more of that muscle, you know, turn more of those muscles on. So it's not about how strong you are, but it's really about how much it's the grading of force and exertion of, of force or reduction based on what you get from an item. So that really informs body awareness and being able to judge your, your, your space based on your awareness of your body. If I put my arm out, I know I'm not going to hit the the bookshelf next to me. I have an idea of how long my arm can extend. And so the activities that are really great for that 
for, for increasing and supporting body awareness are things that involve weight bearing and pulling and pushing and all those home activities I gave you with stirring and lifting and, and being on those, on your, on your elbows to really cue those muscles in your shoulders when you're in tummy time, coloring on the floor, um, you know, get out of the chair, get your body in, in positions where you're going to weight bear and you're going to give more input to your muscles all over your body and, and the awareness, the ability, it's also going to increase your strength. As you turn those muscles on, you're still building to those muscles are firing and, and, you know, building fiber. And as far as kiddos with Down syndrome, where tone is something, you know, that is a, a key feature that we see in kids with Down syndrome is that lower tone. Tone is not going to change much over the lifespan. Um, you can see it change in response to certain types of movement or activities within, you know, momentarily or in a, in a short period of time, it won't change a whole lot, but over the lifespan, someone with low tone is going to have low tone. And that doesn't mean they can't build strength. That's a totally different piece of what we're looking at. Tone is neurological. And so in order to support our kids with Down syndrome who have lower tone, oftentimes joint laxity. Um, they are at risk for, you know, especially in the neck, you know, there, there is, uh, the joints are more vulnerable. What we want to do is build strength. So those weight bearing activities, those activities that get the body moving are going to build strength and build stability around the joints that would otherwise not be, would not be as stable essentially. That's a great description of low tone because I was always confused by that. I remember talking to therapists and just having that question of what does the low tone mean compared to, to strength, you know, that you could build the strength and that the low tone really wouldn't, you're always building around that to strengthen. Because I think as, you know, as parents, we're given this, this laundry list of things that are, that will be challenges for our child, which I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of using that information to give us knowledge and to support our children. I'm not a fan of that being used as a boundary or to create barriers for our children. And I think one of the things on that list that's huge and hit hard is they have low tone. And the way it's presented is this is detrimental and they're going to be weak and they're going to, there's all these things that come along with it that then we fill in the blanks. So I, I love the definition and just knowing that Tone is different than strength, and strength can still be built, but tone is just going to affect these other things like in the neck and certain, and, and that's how we use it for power. That's how we take that information and use it to support our kids because we know they can, they can be strong. And I don't think that, you know, I say that and that may sound a little silly, but I don't think, I think that that's something that's used as, as a deficit. We've encountered it over the last 10 years so many times that, that even when people say they have low tone, they don't know what they're saying and they think they, they think it's something else. So, you know, you could have a PE coach say, Hey, he's got low tone. Now they're not an occupational therapist or a, or a physical therapist or any of these things. So their perception of what this means to your child is they're not going to be able to participate. Well, as a parent, now you can say, just so you know, because they are trying to do their best tone and strength are two very different things. We can work to build their strength but let's be aware that tone could present these challenges. So we want to build their strength while keeping them safe. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I completely agree. And I could say as a generality to parents who have kids with developmental differences, whether they are genetic differences or neuromuscular differences, neurological differences, a diagnosis doesn't really 
tell me who this kid is. It tells me little things about the likelihood of certain things happening or being part of who they might be. But, you know, when I get a kiddo who has a diagnosis and I'm reading the chart, I go, okay, so let's say they have Down syndrome. So I have an idea of, you know, some of the things that I might see, but it doesn't tell me about, like we said, the potential. It doesn't tell me about who they are as an individual. It tells me, it gives me a guidance. It's a guide. And I think that there is nothing that I read in a chart that gives me a clear out picture of this is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to turn out. I could see, I have seen handfuls of kids who have the same diagnosis and each one is different. And they're, like you said, the milestones get hit at different points and the way they reach those milestones are reached in different ways. You know, the way they do it is different ways and different strategies work for different kids. And that's just individual difference, diagnosis or not. So I, I completely agree that it's a, it's, it's a guide. And I think parents can put that in their pocket. Take that and put that in your pocket. So when you go into a specialist or when you go into, and I'm always talking about finding the team that supports you and the way that you think and the way that you see your child. So when you go into an office and someone does make a blanket statement or try to tell you who your child is going to be, take that, take that from our occupational therapist, Erin Stanford, and, and know that she's acknowledging that she can only read it. It's just a chart and that doesn't tell you who your child is. So just know that if you get one of those blanket statements that you can smile and know that the truth is, is nobody who can tell you who your child is. Your child is going to tell you who your child is. I have literally seen kids who at under a year, under six months, under three months, doctors have told the parents, your child will not walk. Your child will not talk. Your child won't eat the way another child will eat. And that breaks my heart because a parent who is not informed at that point, because you have an infant who's spent three months in the NICU, you know, and all you know is the NICU and you haven't gotten to the therapist and you haven't gotten to the specialist. And all you are is in this period of frankly grieving, which is important for a parent to go through an experience and that you can talk to our MFTs on staff about. But I think that what's so important is that doctors don't know everything and they can't predict the future. And, and I don't mean to pick on doctors because a lot of other people will say that too. I, I, it's an example because I have one in my head specifically who I'm working with now, who is a beautiful, healthy, walking, still working on talking little boy who was told he wouldn't eat. He is now eating a typical, his G tube is going to come out all these things. And we just can't predict. Nothing is predictable in life other than what do they say? death and taxes, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've discussed that many times that the limitations that almost subconsciously put on your child because of what you've heard from professionals, you, you could be told something and then in your mind, that's just what the fact is. And so then it gets projected on your child and it, it can be detrimental. Uh, you wouldn't do that to any kid. And it's the standard to say to any typical kid, you can do anything. You can do anything. So Let's do that for kids with challenges as well. And I just want to encourage doctors to stop saying these, they're never going to. It doesn't, I, it doesn't, I don't know why they do that. It's like, it doesn't help in the moment. It doesn't help the parent. It doesn't, and they're, because you can't ever say never. Like that is, you can, you could say there's a possibility that this will be a challenge. There's these, but, but the, the weight of those words are, 
are, they just land on parents because we're humans that are very vulnerable at those moments. And when we hear this, these blanket statements. So if you've heard that, take into consideration this conversation that we're having is that it's a malleable thing, right? And I think those changes are happening. It's just going to have to come from inside the, the profession itself. I think that those things also come not just from doctors, but I think my anticipation is that, you know, doctors, therapists, specialists, we come into what we're doing because we want to help, right? No doctors going to med school going, I'm going to tell everybody I can, I'm going to find the ones that aren't going to, right. That's, that's not why they're getting it. But I think, you know, trying to get it into that mindset is going, I want to give them just, I want to guard them from the pain of when it doesn't happen. Right. Maybe that's where they're coming from. And, and I want to give you, look, just a heads up, this is probably, and I think, you know, even OTs, PTs may say things where it's, where they see that we may not get this particular skill. And I think that it's about, you know, what other things can we be doing? That's where we go, okay, if this child really is not going to walk or talk or use a hand that's been impacted by a neurological, let's say, you know, um, event, what else can we do? Let's problem solve. Let's be problem solvers instead of just, sorry, this isn't gonna happen as OTs. I mentioned we look at remediation, fixing a problem, and adaptation, working around a problem. And so when we come across those play areas where a kiddo has plateaued, and it's, it's a very real thing when you have kids with developmental differences, you may hit a plateau and you go, okay, that's fine. What else can we do to support this individual's ability to participate in XYZ? What else can we do? Are there splints? Are there things that we need to bring in as adaptations? Do we modify the environment? Do we change the way that his table is oriented? Do we, you know, it, there are so many things we can do to modify. Um, and that's one thing that OTs specialize in. We really look at what else is a possibility. We are the profession of possibilities. That there, I like that. I never thought of it that way. We look at how can we help you do this? Given all of the limitations, all of the challenges, all of the speed bumps, how do we make this work? I, yeah. I love profession of possibility. I yeah, love that. Great. I do too. So it would be encouraging our listeners to when they do get, and, and, I, and I'm right there with you, Erin. I know, I, I do believe that everybody is doing their best. And I believe that. I think that what we're coming through as a community is, is making a change and changing a conversation. And that sometimes is work and that sometimes doesn't feel good. So it would be just encouraging our listeners to have the conversation because that person that just made that blanket statement, that doesn't mean that they're riddled with prejudices against your child. That's just where they're coming from. That's just all they know. So if you can invite them to have a conversation with you of this is what you believe. So let's work around it and let's let's find our way through it. This journey is like climbing a mountain in the dark. You, you're hiking, hiking up, up, up this mountain and you get to a plateau, let's say, but you don't know it's a plateau till you've been walking on flat ground for a while. And so we have to figure that out as we go, not at three months or at birth, you're told. Or at diagnosis. Things. Or at diagnosis, right. So the idea is that we'll experience this together as a team, as a family, and, and we'll, we'll find out where these plateaus come and limitations or, or where these strengths come. It's about empowering parents to ask questions, 
for those of us who are in this world, we know how many resources exist and we know the questions and we know that when we hear something that maybe doesn't sit quite right, you can always get a second opinion. And there are lots and lots of parents for every one of us who, who know that there are questions asked and there is somebody else. There are lots of parents who feel like the first person that tells them something is the ultimate work. And I think that it's about empowering parents when they have that feeling in their gut to go a little bit further. And, you know, sometimes Google really hurts, but sometimes Google leads you to great organizations and people and parents who are in that same world with you and you can learn from. And, you know, there are also parents and organizations that are give you just the, the worst, most negative, but you really have to go out and explore and get that information for yourself. And I think that, you know, again, parents who are early on in it, it's hard to do that. And you're in this, this state of just, I'm just going to let the people who are in my life right now, the doctors, the professionals tell me. And I, I think that it's so critical that, that parents become empowered to search for more answers and not settle all the time, you know, even when it's good news. Get other, get other perspectives because one person does not have all the answers, no matter who you are. And, and it's exhausting and it's time consuming and the bureaucracy of insurance and all the funding sources that, you know, just in LA here, it's so complicated. And I, I don't know systems outside of, you know, this world because I've always been in Los Angeles. But um, I imagine that in other states and other countries, you know, there are other hoops to jump through and it's exhausting. But Everybody wants to do the best by their kids. Every parent, every, you know, professionals who are in this field, we want to do right by the kids. And so parents, the point person. So, you know, I, I encourage your listeners to really take that and go out and find groups like the club 21 here in Los Angeles. I don't know if they extend beyond, but I know that we're, you know, I've got lots of parents and, and clients who have been connected with club 21 and the buddy walk and, you know, there, there are lots of resources out there to get more information. Going back to that half glass full thought processes, you can have that attitude, surround yourself with that. You're going to run into people that aren't thinking that way uh, outside our community and in our community. We can butt heads on certain thinking in our community and positive attitudes. So surround yourself with the people that are like-minded and seek that information. Also listen to everything else, but Everything doesn't have to have such a heavy weight, especially the negative things don't have to be so so weighted. I think you pointed out that there are people with like new new babies and diagnosis. Enjoy that. Just from my experience, we were doing therapies so much from very little. It, it became it became more about this machine, the right? schedule, the schedule, and just take the time to really enjoy your baby, your child, because yeah. they're they're pretty great you know, and, and I think that some of that gets lost, you know, with the worry and the stress and the fears. So make sure you check in and that you're, you're enjoying the entire experience of that, that life. I had questions for you on your, what did you call it? Properception. Is that when we're talking about sensory, is that like when your child will go to give a hug and it's too strong. Cause I'll, I'll use the terminology gentle. I'll just say gentle, like to just like to pull back a little. Would that be like when they're hugging too, too hard or pushing against your face and then it becomes like a, a face plant? Is, is mm -hmm. that what that is? Or digging their chin maybe into or your digging the chin. shoulder or something. Yeah. 
it, it could be proprioception. Absolutely. It's, it's that feeling. Um, a lot of us do things to meet that sensory need without even thinking about it. You know, I have a professor of mine who talks about like, she can't function unless she goes for a run. She needs that feet pounding the concrete in order to really organize her body. It's a very organizing sensation. Um, it's actually something that we use to combat uncomfortable or painful feelings. Um, and this comes into this. Is, I could go on and on about this one. So imagine you're, you know, you're walking around, you fall and you skin your knee. Okay. Your pain is a tactile sensation. That is your tactile system responding. But what do you do? grab onto your knee, you clench your jaw, right? You're squeezing really tight. Your body gets tight and all of that muscle tightening, the jaw, all of it, that is proprioception. That activation of all those muscles serves to balance out and, and really modulate that uncomfortable, that painful feeling that's happening in the tactile system. So the hugging, the deep hugging, that squeeze. Yeah, absolutely. If, it, if it's an activity that is where, where you're seeing that they're overshooting or they're undershooting a, a, a hug that's too strong, um, even stacking blocks, that gradation of force and being able to understand if I do it too hard, I'm going to smack that whole tower down. If I do it too soft, it's going to fall out of my hand and it won't stay. That balance of power, essentially physical power. And yes, giving a really big bear hug. And what your child may be looking for if they're squeezing you is they may be looking for you to squeeze them back. Now that, you know, there's, there's a difference between deep pressure when you're just applying passive touch to, to the muscles versus actively really looking for that deep squeeze. So if you're getting that a lot, if you're getting, if you have a child who comes up and really just looks for that big squeeze, maybe we need to incorporate things a little more consistently throughout the day to be able to give them that information, be able to give them what they're looking for. So they're not doing it in a way that may hurt someone. And I know that, you know, it's probably not intended. I can see that you really like, you really need to do a big squeeze right now. And maybe we have a hug pillow. Maybe we have one of those big, cushy, fluffy animal kinds of things that we can do, or we can have a crashing area and we can go climbing on our, on our crashing area and really get those muscles working to give that sensory information that that kiddo is looking for. What's funny that sensory activities that give comfort to children sometimes are, are looked at negatively. But you just pointed out we so all well do that, it. yeah, when you fall down and or you bump your elbow on something, you kind of ru you rub it, right? And you think about it, that's just the anatomy of, of a human being, but that brings comfort. I don't know why. I mean, you would know why, but you do it. So these feelings come out in a natural, typical way, but they're not always looked that way. No, they're part of the they're part of the perception of. I guess that what we get a lot is. And we've actually been said, people have actually said to us, does he have superhuman strength? And now I can say, no, it's a pro preperception thing. <laughs> and we all do it. He wants that information sent to his body. And what that also, again, is doing is it's giving him a sense of what his body is capable of. It's giving them that, him that body awareness, right? And going, ooh. And it's really okay to say, oh, Liam, that's a really strong hug. That kind of hurts me. Let's see if we can do a gentle hug. And now we can go, okay, we've got our bear hug. Now what would, what would a rabbit hug be like? And it's soft and it's cozy, right? And it's gentle. And maybe we can find some middle grounds. Now you've got a bear. Now what would it be if an elephant came and gave me a giant hug with his trunk, right? And we can grade up and we can grade down, but giving kids kind of visuals that are um, less abstract 
It's a very, very abstract thing. And it's a very complicated topic, even for adults. I mean, we're talking about it and it's really complicated to express. But when you can put it in terms of things that are familiar to a child, right? If they like trucks, maybe we're doing a big bulldozer hug, or maybe it's a little motorcycle hug. And you can change things to give them a visual of the intensity that they might be able to change within them physically. And, and that's a really important thing for them to understand in order to then make that change and make those little modifications and adjustments in the way that they're engaging. That's so good. Yeah. Wow. It, we're always Just learning a great on way this to, journey. to bridge that communication, you know, it's, to make it a, a picture, something that is identifiable for the child. And could it be something that under like a stressful environment or a new environment that maybe we'd see those activities as well? Absolutely. I think that, um, again, like you said in, in a piece earlier, we were talking about them not being able to communicate. I don't have the word to say I'm frustrated. And what do we do when we're frustrated? We hit things. I'm heated, right? I lose track of where my body is when I'm upset or when I'm when I'm stressed, when I don't want to do something and I throw myself on the ground and I don't realize that there's a wall right there and I hit my head. All these things that I look for that input when I'm at a heightened sense state of emotion or dysregulation. Um, and so, yeah, we absolutely look for those things, right? Kids that, that are more physically aggressive, maybe we need to hit something and it's okay to hit something, but let's find something that's appropriate. Let's have our pillow. If you need to go and, and get that physical expression out because you don't have the verbal expression. Absolutely. We look for sensory outlets for sure. We have so many questions and it's such great information just to give to parents because what I see a lot of, Erin, is the lack of information that's out there. And plus, when you start this journey, if you don't know anybody or if you don't have information readily at hand, it can get overwhelming. And then you, you start behind the ball and then you kind of stay there and then taking into mind then the just the perception and fears and other challenges, the information isn't out there. And so I'll see when then something comes up like a behavior or they're not eating or whatever, it, it holds so much weight. So just to be able to provide this information and even, I mean, as you're talking, Stephen and I are having these light bulb moments of, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, that's what that is. And so I think that's what it provides to the people who are listening as well. I want to give you stuff that's useful. Um, I also think that, you know, in terms of you're talking about being behind the ball if you don't get started. I was brought into McRory to replace an OT who was in one of our early intervention programs. And we have a few center-based programs at McRory. And we have two that were that are designed for early intervention. Um, so kids under three. One of them is designed for kids who are likely to get a diagnosis of autism or may already have a diagnosis of autism. And the other one is for the other, um, the kiddos with global delays, various genetic neuromuscular unknown things going on. Um, and so I got to come in and work in early intervention where, you know, that critical development period, those, that zero to three, um, they have to be ready. It's an intensive program. It's every day for three hours. And so the, usually we, we have kids at about 18 months or so, but the earliest we've actually had, I think probably the two earliest kiddos that started were 16 months and both had down syndrome. Um, so I've had, that's, that's been the largest grouping of clients that I've had with down syndrome has been the under three population. And I think whether it's that or something else, early intervention is so critical 
it is so important because it really does allow you to get ahead and get those early resources going, hit those critical periods of development and get started when the brain is so impressionable and you really want to get those good foundations. So within that program, we have, you know, it's, it's OTPT speech and child development um, on a daily basis for that three hour chunk parent involvement and support. And then I, you know, after that, we, we help them transition to the school district at that point you know, getting their other, you know, services set up through different funding sources outside of that early intervention program. And, and then, you know, we also see early school age kids. Most of our kids tend to be under about eight. We have some, you know, kids who go beyond that, but most of my clientele have been under about that point. So, um, but I, I completely agree that getting involved while at the same time, enjoying those early moments of just parenthood um, is really important, but also, Get your things in line so that you can make that change and have it become part of your daily vernacular and part of your daily routine to be working on these things comfortably. And you don't feel like you always have to be go, 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 go. It just becomes more fluid in the things that you're naturally doing. And if you haven't started yet, that's okay. Be where you are when you start and then and then just move forward from there without any kind of judgment or guilt or anything just that you're you're moving forward but what would because sensory is something that's huge and it impacts a lot in the daily lives what would parents look for when it comes for sensory to know that they would then need to seek some kind of support that is a big question <laughs> Well, we have all these different sensory systems. You know, I could break down each one in terms of, you know, the tactile system, looking at, you know, acceptance of textures. Are they more sensitive? Do they really look at, do they need to touch everything? Are they getting into things where exploration is excessive? I think we're more often than not, particularly with the population that has Down syndrome, we see more what's called under responsiveness. It takes more for them to register. So they don't have the awareness. There's less awareness, at least of tactile media. So you'll see kids with higher pain thresholds. You know, a a lot of my, a lot of my kiddos who have Down syndrome, the parents go, yeah, I didn't even realize that that tooth was coming because they didn't have the discomfort with teething. You know, they'll fall down and not really notice that they've skinned their knee. There's just less awareness in particular to those body sensations, things like in terms of movement, you know, difficulty with, uh, you know, if a child has difficulty being laid down for a diaper change and it's beyond just, I don't want my diaper change, but they really are screaming when they have to have their head tilted back or on swings or in the car, they fight going into the car seat, the movement sensation, um, your movement is part of your vestibular system and the receptors are in your ear. Um, and so head position, we actually are always responding to movement because we have gravity pushing down and our body needs to stay up. So we look at, this is a big one, postural control with kids and postural writings. When, you know, we see that uh, more slouched posture a lot of times and with that uh, low tone, those muscles that aren't firing in our abdominals and our back to keep us upright, but you'll see that the postural muscles are heavily impacted by the movement sensation and the ability to kind of respond to gravity pushing down on us. 
Um, these are really complex concepts to be able to give you a, a teeny tiny understanding of, but doing things where if, if they're rolling on the ground, you know, are they, will they roll? Are they moving? Um, a lot of our kids just kind of are more sedentary and content to be with decreased strength. It's harder to move. So they don't seek out those movement opportunities. And so they really, you, you need things, you need to be exposed to things in order to develop them. So when a child is more sedentary, you know, is, is being propped up in baby carriers or is sitting in a, in various seating positions or being carried and they're not given the opportunity to kind of explore more and build that strength and do that exploring, you may see challenges with movement because that system hasn't been given the opportunity to integrate and take and learn. All of your sensory systems need to learn. Um, it's a it's about messages being sent to your central nervous system in your brain and going, oh, what's that? Ooh, how do I respond to that? That that's the crux of sensory processing is that it's about making creating responses. We call them adaptive responses to sensory input. When I experience this particular sensory input, my body does what? My brain does what to to respond to it? So you know your tactile sensitivities, your movement sensitivities, you know, with again, the, the proprioception one, you'll see kind of just poor grading of force. That's the biggest, you know, when you're working with kiddos that have difficulty again with the stacking blocks or they're holding a crayon really, really loosely and not really pressing on the paper um, for some of our older kids who may be doing those kinds of things, grading of force, you know, even holding a cup, can they drink out of a cup with one hand or two hands, or is it spilling? Cause they're going too fast or too slow and they can't get it. Adjusting those movements, pushing with a fork. This is a big one that we work on. We do a lot of self-care. Are they spearing with a fork? You know, when they, when they can get on top of a piece and then they're pushing, but it's not enough. Are they learning how to push hard enough? so that they can be successful, right? Respond to, oh, I'm touching that piece, but it's not working. Are the messages traveling up the arm into the brain going, hey, you gotta push harder, send back out that motor message to say, okay, go muscles, go. So those are some of the things just kind of functionally that you might see where, oh, that, that could be. And what else there, I mean, there, there are so many little things that we look for, you know, we responses to light, you know, visually again, beyond, you know, there's the depth perception things. If a kid's stacking blocks and they keep overshooting, we go, okay, well, wait a minute, that could be something. Well, maybe we refer you to a developmental optometrist. Maybe it's something where there's something where, where we actually need glasses to help with acuity, but then we also can work on that visual processing and taking in the environment from a visual standpoint and helping you create more clear visual, you know, understanding the visual representation in front of you. Um, Sensory is an issue or a concern. And so what I'm hearing from you is that when it comes to sensory, there's the traditional sensory that we're used to or accustomed to, which is that sensitivity to sensory input. But with kiddos with Down syndrome, there's also the existence of lack of sensory, like uh, a diminished sensory, would you say? So when, when, we, when we do see the pain threshold or things like that. I, I wouldn't say diminished sensory, but I would say it's an under-responsiveness. So it takes more to hit a threshold. Uh, a lot of kids have a higher threshold for pain, a higher threshold for things where 
Um, they're not aware until they get a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of input and they go, oh, look, there it is, right? So that's the other piece, you know, with those big, strong hugs, he may be giving you that big, strong hug because that's the point where he can really feel his body turn on. And so, yes, there is, there is a spectrum of awareness within the sensory systems. And so that's something that parents can, you know, just to put that information out there, that's something that you can also be aware of yourself and then start to seek an occupational therapist or therapies to support your child. It's not just the sensory in the fashion that I am accustomed to knowing about. We can also get support in the under sensory to, to work on, work on those and that input. Sensory has become this buzzword. And I think that in particular, because there are oftentimes sensory components and you see sensory differences in a diagnosis like autism, which has become prevalent. And so you see, you hear these things, you hear, you know, there's all these buzzwords and then parents want to overdiagnose their kid and go, oh, he's, 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 he's sensory seeking. He's, he's always seeking, he's climbing. And you go, well, wait a minute, because your kid's five. And yeah, they're climbing, but there is also an appropriateness to certain sensory be- sensory seeking behaviors, okay? So we wanna make sure that we're not just pathologizing everything because it's really easy to do that. We don't wanna nitpick on our kids who are just being kids. We live in a hypercritical society. Everything is being scrutinized. You know, when you talk to your parents and things back in the 1950s, they're like, oh yeah, whatever. They were jumping off the rooftop into the pool. And now the parent would go, they're seeking movement. They're looking, he's climbing so high, right? And I think that it's so easy to pathologize and go, what's wrong with my kid? And you go, you know what? Let's step back. Let's look at, is this impacting your child's ability to function? And sometimes when you're over-responsive and you are responding really quickly to things, it, it can impact function it could just be, you're a little hypersensitive. You know what? I don't like that texture, but it's also not going to restrict me and send me into a meltdown. Or maybe, you know what? You're a little under responsive and you're not quite responding as quickly and, and being able to, to create a response, but it, it's not out of the, out of the, the range of normal, normal in quotes. I don't like the word normal, but this range of within normal limits is, is a very therapy term. So if you have concerns, an evaluation does not hurt. It doesn't mean you are going to qualify for services. It means that you were looking for support. It means you are looking for an answer. And I think that that's all we can do is if you don't have an answer, look for an answer. Your evaluator may go, you know what? It's a little off, but I've noticed that they're actually really participating nicely in these activities. Here are some things you can practice at home. And I don't think that this is necessarily like it's not negatively impacting their ability to participate. And so, you know, and, and then you could go, you know what this actually really is. I can see that they get super stuck on this. or they're just so unaware of their surroundings or what they're capable of doing that. Yeah. They're, it's really impacting mealtime or, you know, sitting or, or participation at school or whatever it is. Um, so it can go either way, but an evaluation never hurts. If you have a question, find an answer. And I like that. And I like that you, you know, bring to the attention that your, your parents in the 1950s would be just, that's just, just a kid, just a kid, just a, a person. And there is a, you know, so it's like technology. There's a certain part that take advantage of the technology that's there, how we've grown with supports and medicine and knowledge, take advantage of that. But then there is that element of 
he's just a kid. He's just a human. He's they're just you know let that be a part of the the personality. We can't just who they are. We can't just take away all of what what makes us us, right? Unless it is negatively impacting, and then we can get those supports that that we need. How at what age can someone start seeking out occupational therapy? Really, at, at birth, if it's necessary, within California, and there are other states, but you qualify if, if you qualify for regional center support, either with a diagnosis at birth, a child with Down syndrome will qualify for services. You know, there are certain things that are known that will need support. It's very likely they'll have to go through an evaluation system, but you can go to your regional center and apply for services. They are free. They're state funded and. Um, basically what would happen then is the, the regional center team would do their evaluating. Sometimes they have, uh, outside contractors like us will get evaluations, um, from the regional center and for kids, you know, it, it really is technically zero to three. Oftentimes it, it starts, you know, after three, it's a few months. So it's when you start to kind of look at those milestones, um, oftentimes, with, you know, even though you have a diagnosis at birth, you don't really start to see kind of where things are being impacted until a little bit later, other than feeding. Feeding is something from the get-go that can be impacted, obviously. You're not looking at grasping and holding on to things. The, the primary occupation at birth, essentially for an infant, is making sure that they can eat. And if low tone, if musculature, if you know reflexes are not quite there, that we have natural reflexes that allow us to suck and swallow and breathe. And those things sometimes need support. You may see a feeding therapist. Um, you know, oftentimes Southern California, at least that's oftentimes done by an occupational therapist or a speech pathologist. Um, when it comes to swallowing, you would see someone with an advanced practice. OTs are not automatically qualified to look at swallowing. So for oral motor or feeding, we look at bringing to the mouth and manipulation within the mouth, but uh, you need an advanced practice certification to look at swallowing. It is within the automatic licensure of speech pathologists to look at the swallow. So just for your parents that aren't really sure if they're concerned about feeding, you know, obviously see your pediatrician, they need to give you a referral. We need a, a we, we do need a a prescription for an evaluation, but early on, it would be probably feeding coming into, you know, three months more. when you start to see kids holding on to things, you start to see babies paying attention more to their, to their hands. You're starting to see more movement. That's early, early kind of, you want to see some rolling. Those things are likely to be a little bit delayed, especially, you know, particularly with, with a child with down syndrome. And so you want to kind of get again, get ahead of the ball and start working on those things, knowing that we need to work on strengthening. We need to work on that stability and that postural piece. You know, getting in that tummy time can often be really hard because it's a strain on those muscles. It's really challenging for typically developing babies that hate tummy time. But uh, the, usually it would be, you know, on the earlier side, sometimes a bit later, and that's fine. Again, like you said, do it when you can. But we oftentimes see when we have a clear diagnosis, we know that our kiddos are probably going to need those supports of T, PT early and, and start really getting those muscles kind of working a little bit more, you know, with a little more intentionality than kind of naturally letting it happen. 
Yeah, that's great because I think that we need to uh, just know knowing what to look for and what to ask for because I believe with, with Liam, we didn't understand because we did get the diagnosis 10 days after he was born. So we weren't really sure what was required or what could be done or what might be a challenge. So it's good to take the information if you have a diagnosis beforehand or as soon as you get that diagnosis and start seeking out these supports and resources. And these are the supports and resources that are out there for you. And you can talk to your pediatrician and get the prescription and get the evaluations and and get that ball rolling and get the supports that you need. Because I'll be honest, I don't think we took advantage of that. We have a phenomenal pediatrician that was really our guidance. And she would she actually would be the the person to say, no, this is what you you need to get this evaluation. This is what they need to. And she was very, she was, she advocated for us before we knew what advocation was as to empower us to ask for these things. Because I think another thing that happens to parents is they're afraid to ask. They don't want to take a handout. They don't want to be a burden. They don't, there's, there's so many just different feelings and emotions and thoughts that go into it uh, that come from various places but this is different. This is for your child. And this is actually what's out there because of research and because of doctors and because of people who came before us. So we know what challenges might be there. And this is available and this will help. And the early intervention, the earlier, the better. Absolutely. Um, OT and school. So when parents go into school, there's a difference between what the school provides as far as occupational therapy and what is if you were just going if we were just going to go to McCrory and seek occupational therapy for the different supports can you talk a little bit about the difference between occupational therapy when it comes to school versus at home sure so um it really comes down to unfortunately comes down to funding source um the school district is looking at all things related to a child accessing their curriculum, accessing their learning environment. Um, when you come to see me in a clinic, you are probably gonna be coming through if you're under three, maybe regional center or private insurance. And sometimes we get hours from LUSD, or sorry, not LUSD, but the school district. Here it's LUSD. And we then will need to kind of adhere to the school district's guidance and perspective. So within school, we have to look at, okay, is this child able to participate in the classroom? That comes down to more of those fine motor things like being able to you know, engage in writing tasks and cutting tasks and sequencing a multi-step craft or something like that, using glue, attention for a task like that. We'll look at engagement and participation in terms of sustained attention to a, to a task. Also sitting in a chair, does the child have the postural support? Again, we go to those abdominal muscles, the spinal muscles that allow a child to sit in a chair. Oh, I dropped my pencil. I need to bend over and pick it up. Can I get back up? Do I have the core strength to be able to sit in this classroom setting? Um, looking at access to the playground within the OT's, you know, domain, it's still, that's part of their learning curriculum. It's part of their learning space. And we want to make sure that they can climb up the obstacle, you know, up the, the climbing gym with their friends and, and, you know, can they access those things more heavily though? It's really about classroom participation. So school OT often, you know, goals will be around those fine motor tasks and coloring and, and letter formation. As you get older, we really kind of gear more into, you know, away from just participating in a multi-step activity or attending to a, a teacher-directed activity 
and then moving into actual letter formation, letter alignment, orientation on the lines, cutting on lines, drawing lines, imitation of strokes, formation of shapes and things like that. And as you get higher, you move into those things. Sometimes with some of our kids, we end up working on typing. You know, if writing becomes significantly challenging for a child, again, here's an adaptation. Everything in high school, they're not going to be handwriting their papers. They're going to be typing their papers. When they get to college, they're going to be typing their papers. Nobody wants to see a handwritten essay. So we go, look, they can write their ABCs. Do they have a foundation of handwriting? Yes. But is the speed impacting their participation? Is it taking excessively long? Does the strength in their hand, you know, impact how much they can write within a period? So maybe we go, look, let's work on typing. Let's get those little finger muscles working in a way that's going to make this more legible, make you successful. So there's a lot of things, but it's really about targeting the academics and the school environment requirements. In the clinic here in Los Angeles, uh, when it's insurance funded therapy, what they want to see is that it's quote, medically necessary. And what is medically necessary? Um, Typically, that means that it is related to self-care. They don't want to see the academics. That is not medical. That's not the medical model. That's the academic model. So we have more of an emphasis on things like dressing and self-feeding and maybe oral motor progression for textures of foods, things like that. We work on hygiene, hand-washing, sequencing of tasks. Again, the multi-step activity from school might be color this, cut it out, glue it on the paper. A multi-step task in the clinic might be turn the water on, get wet, get the soap, rub your hands, turn it right. So what we do essentially as OTs, no matter where your therapy is happening and who your funding source is, is we do what's called a task analysis, which is essentially a breaking down of a task. We look at the sub parts and instead of just wash your hands, We go, let's look at all the little teeny tiny steps and break it down to help a child. Okay, great. You can turn the water on all by yourself. Oh, what do we need to do next? Right. And we need to put our hands under it and we're going to count to 10. Now in this age of pandemic, we count longer, (laughs) but it's breaking up those steps and helping them get through a task more independently. Things like dressing, you know, it's not just putting on or taking off a shirt. Then once we can do individual pieces, we sequence them. Let's put an outfit out and we can help you work through a multi-step again. And that's attention. That's expanding on attention, following through with the task or feeding. Feeding is a big one that we get. It is utensil use. It is oral motor to manipulate different textures of foods, crunchy solids, chewy solids, Purees. Sometimes it's harder for a child to manage puree and mixed textures, you know, so it's really more geared towards self-care. And also we incorporate the sensory processing, the strengthening, all those foundational pieces. But it's, again, we have to look at the the big picture of of function and and occupation while we do those things. Is a straw better for drinking to, to strengthen that mouth than say it was a sports cup with a little sports cup on it? Would those both work to strengthen the mouth or is one more conducive? Well, with a straw, you've got your lip pucker around it and you've got a suck. That that suction is also using your cheeks. Um, with a sport top, you've got your lip pucker. So I like that, but you kind of tip it. So it just kind of spills in your mouth, but maybe it doesn't spill. Maybe you have to use your hand a little bit to squeeze. So there is no right answer on it. There are lots of different drinking vessels. The one thing I will tell you parents, 
who have babies or toddlers who have gone from a bottle or breast and are now going into some early cups. I will tell you that a sippy cup, the spout cup that comes off the edge um, that you kind of tip back, not a straw, but the, like the spout cups are not a developmental milestone. They were invented for parents on the go so that they wouldn't spill. But a child should go from breast and bottle to straw and open cup. There are lots of different straw cups now. There are lots of different kinds. There are some that don't spill on the go and have a nice closure on snap, you know, on the top. And I, as a parent, I completely support using things that don't spill. But if you're really looking at the oral motor development of your child, you want to skip the spout cup. The spout cup actually does not do anything to move your child forward. That's good to know. So that was just a step backwards. It just came into my mind when we were talking about self-care and we were talking about all the different developments. I thought that 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 question personally actually came into mind. So it's about working as a team. So occupational therapy is there that would be a support and a part of a team to to help um, with your child when it comes to you know you have your 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 curriculum, but you there's certain things like cutting a piece of paper, holding Physical. a pencil, like writing things. There's, there's certain, like we, I know Liam works is with his occupational therapist right now on uh, uh, an adaptive mouse to be able to actually navigate distance learning. And uh, he couldn't do it at the beginning of the year. And then we had a conversation and, but by having that mouse and having that occupational therapist to work on that skill, now it opens up the whole window of distance learning. He can go on to the site. He can, he can click on his exercise he, or what his assignment is. He can, and he can participate. Well, it goes back to that function and, and occupational therapy. So this is his, his, occupation this is his job right, right now. now, right? This is his job. <laughs> that is it, his role. It is our role as we move through the day. When he is doing his learning, he is a student, absolutely. And you are a teacher <laughs> and therapist and parent going, go. Well, Aaron, we want to thank you so much for your time and for the wealth of your knowledge. Uh, this is definitely something, this information that you've given us uh, is something that I wish I had when Liam was born. And I hope that it serves to empower uplift and also alleviate you know uh, a little bit of worry and concern for our listeners well it's it's really my pleasure it's been an honor i i appreciate you having won the platform it's great that you guys are using your circumstances in your life to spread the wealth and to empower other parents and families and caregivers um, to really see what is possible you know, I get verbose because I think there's passion behind what I want to convey. And I want to give you as much as I can uh, without boring you with the nitty gritty of like the little neuromuscular things that happen. But it's really, it's fun for me to talk about what I do because I think that there is, um, there, it, it, it's important and I want to make change. And I'm someone who is trying my best to use what I have to help others and integrate what I have with what I'm learning from other disciplines. And I just hope I represented other people, other areas that I might've spoken on appropriately. Um, and I really, th I thank you for having me on. It's been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a great morning. Uh, no, I, I appreciate the nitty gritty because part of it is just g getting to understand even the pro preperception 
Like that to me, just to know that, oh, this is an actual term behind all of the perception and and the list and, and the words that are given to us at the core of that is the truth or where it begins. And if we have that seed, then we can we can plant it in any foundation that we want. You know, we don't have to, to take what it grew into for other people, for other doctors or other professionals or whatever it meant in history and time. We can take what that seed is and we can plant it now with everything that we have present in this day and all the beautiful resources and examples, and we can make it something new. So I love the nitty gritty. We'll just nitty gritty seeds in a profession of possibility. (laughs) I love it. I think we have something there. (laughs) Erin, again, just such a wealth of knowledge. We thank you for being on the show again. Thank you. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come